Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is and brings you the truth as we see it, as we know it, and as it exists. So I just want to let you know that, uh, hey, we're following up on a lot of things that we've said earlier. Uh, One correction we need to make uh, real quick is I was running out of time last podcast and talking about um, basically why the M14 was was adopted over the FNFAL because of its commonality with the M1 Garand and M1 Carbine. I, I realized that kind of got a little muddled at the end. I was I was in a hurry. Um, definitely want to help, help everybody to understand that the M1 Carbine and the M1 Garand are, are two different weapons, and they each have their own set of similarities to what became the M14. So while the cartridge and magazine... And, and some of the functioning was different in the M1 carbine. It, it basically followed the same theory of design. It's kind of a, a junior member of the Garand family, but a member of the Garand family nonetheless. So anyway, just wanted to kind of uh, clarify that, that in no way believe that the M1 carbine is a shortened M1 Garand. It, it is not. It is a different weapon designed along a lot of the same lines and principles. So... Anyway, let's go from there to the hottest political topic of the day, the the fake impeachment, the unconstitutional impeachment of a private citizen who's no longer an office holder. Uh, this thing is a disaster. And as soon as the defense team played the tape of all the incendiary incendiary rhetoric that the Democrats have been saying over the summer and indeed during the last four years. Uh, you know, it was case closed. <laughs> the party's over. The whole the whole fraudulent prosecution case uh, collapsed. Uh, part of it collapsed because look, look at the stooges they brought in to present it. Uh, Eric Swalwell, a guy who was cavorting with a Chinese spy, um, some some doofus from Texas, some guy from somewhere else. I don't, you know, none of them, none of them had any credibility. All they can say is, "Orange man bad, orange man start riot at Capitol." But you know what the bottom line is? Their leadership and their people have started and fueled riots. So all summer long, and forty people have been, at least forty people have been dead. Two thousand police injuries. Thousands of other people injured, all kinds of things. So uh, definitely, that was that's such a loser, such a loser. Another loser. <clears throat> Here in the Midwest, uh, the Super Bowl is a big thing because one of the local teams made it has made it in their last two years. Last year they won, this year they lost. No big deal, you know. But I knew it. I, I said to my spouse, watch, within 24 hours, somehow this will be linked to race. There will be a race aspect to this. And of course I was right. Somebody put on there that obviously, you know, the country needs to pay more reparations because, you know, they're celebrating a white-led quarterback, a white quarterback who leads a team to victory over a black quarterback who leads a team kind of, and it doesn't even make sense when you think about it, because of course there are players 
from everywhere on both teams, so it, it doesn't really matter. But to, for that to happen during Black History Month is an affront. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, then don't play the Super Bowl in Black History Month. Play it in January or play it in March, I guess. <laughs> but the, the bottom line was it didn't even take 24 hours for that to be linked to race. And that's where the country is right now. I mean, this is a... As comical as that is, it's just sad and pathetic. And you know what the worst part about it was? It's a good thing the NFL didn't get wind of that before the game, or, or else they would have done. They would have had to do something else. Um, the NFL is pathetic. I myself can't even stand to watch any of it. I, I did not watch the Super Bowl. I don't really care about it. But I realize there are fans. There are people who are really wrapped up in it. And if you are, good for you. And and I hope that these these nerdy activists who try to link this to race are, you know, I just hope that they get, just get drowned out. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Okay, let's talk about something that's yet another follow-up. Uh, the ammo situation. You know, I basically laid it out as I see it. And of course, <laughs> shoot, our friend of the podcast sent us a... Um, a link to Shooting Illustrated, the NRA's magazine, which has got basically a reiteration of those dopey videos that we've seen put out by the ammo companies. Um, you know, I, I just, I still don't buy it. I mean, I, their rationalization just, it doesn't cut it because I'm not seeing the ammo. And I, here's, here's an example, and I mentioned it the last time, but a friend of mine, a hunter, a FUD, if you will, has a 7mm Remington Magnum. Okay. Um, couldn't find ammo anywhere. Anywhere. Prior to hunting, started hunting season with like nine rounds. Finished hunting season with like four rounds. Because he, he wanted to confirm, you know, here's a guy who's saying, can I afford a shot to confirm my zero? That type of, that type of thing. So I, you know, I was looking around for him. Because it's, he's a guy who, you know, uh, fellow veteran guy I work with I'm gonna like I'm, I'm just gonna say I'm gonna keep my eyes open because in case he's in case he's looking around you know uh, I'll, I'll help him out I'll if I see it I'll pick it up because I know he's I know he's good for the money if if uh, that so I go into a well off the beaten track gun shop way out in the middle of no place and they've got some they've got two boxes and the guy says well I'm rationing everybody to a single box of ammo so you know here here it is um he did make an exception sold my wife two boxes of 16 gauge ammo which we needed but uh so i i bought it and it's like hey it's like 40 44 bucks or whatever 42 bucks something like that and it's fiacci it's not even what you would expect it to be which is federal or remington or something hornady or something like that it's, it's fiacci so, I mean, and that's the only stuff I've come up with in months of looking. Months. So where is all this ammo that they're turning out? Because it's not showing up in stores. I would get it if the guy says, look, I got a shipment in. I got my routine shipment in. And, hey, guess what? It's sold out in two days. Even rationing it to one or two boxes per, per person. I would get that. But they're telling me they're not getting the ammo in. They're not getting it. And, and part of the reason that this is so perplexing is I had the, I had a couple of boxes of Wolf 762 by 39 
in um, I had that that I bought in 2002 and I, I shot I shot most of it up but I had a couple boxes left and um, so I, I had them in an ammo can with some other odds and ends I also had the receipt in there and of course in 2002 a uh, thousand rounds of 762 by 39 was a whopping $75 you know wrap your head around that I realize it's 19 years ago but still you know that's that's a pretty uh, not that long ago so I have this stuff so I recently bought some other 762 by 39 I saw it one of my dealers had it said hey you know you can buy 500 round whack of it here you go so I buy it and when I, when I was unpacking it I noticed that the boxes look strangely familiar and then I went and looked at my 2002 the few boxes I had left and the boxes were identical so what I bought was not something recently imported it's some stash this is new old stock that somebody's had you know squirreled away for a long time and is now selling now that they can realize a profit and I don't know how much of it's there or, or what the what the story was but yeah the packing was exactly the same everything and the boxes were identical and I'm I'm just willing to wager that Wolf has changed the appearance of their box in 18 or 19 years can't be it can't be these were new boxes so Anyway, that's, but just to tell you, there's just not a lot of ammo out there, and there should be. I mean, it should be hitting the shelves and flying off the shelves, but instead, it's not hitting the shelves. They're making it, and it's not hitting the shelves. What's the deal? And, and of course, then they say, well, but, and this is why you can't get primers, because we are sending our primers to new ammo production, and, you know, normally it's our... We can make a lot more primers than we can ammo, so we sell the, the excess off to hand loaders. Well, guess what? There's no excess now. Well, if I were Dylan, and I realize these are not giant companies, uh, but if I were Dylan, Lee, RCBS, Redding, Hornaday, whoever else makes reloading stuff anymore, uh, I would be, I would put together a joint venture and go to say wolf or aguila the one south of the border magtech anybody go to anybody who makes primers and say we will buy a container of, of primers from you that's got to be a trillion primers i don't know um you could fit a lot of them inside a a 45 foot container or 40 foot shipping container and and then sell them to your people because sell them to your customers because guess what when primers run out people will stop buying reloading equipment and that whole industry could collapse it could collapse if if you don't have primers primers are the one thing you've got to absolutely have that you cannot really substitute so it's going to be a real it's going to be a real deal i think somebody needs to even i know you can't import chinese made ammunition but maybe we could get chinese primers i don't know they could fill a container ship full of primers and send them over here and make themselves everybody would be happy everybody would be happy so you know it's, it's something's gonna have to give here at first i thought it would be over with by summer now i think it's going to be if I had to if I had to bet money if I had to bet my real hard-earned money I would say it's going to be another year 
before we see normal see what we consider normal that you can go into a store and they've got primers sitting there that people aren't going to be you know fighting each other to get and, and i think that the, the worst part is that this panic buying and there's a lot obviously a lot of that going on it doesn't explain the shortages but it explains a lot but i think that some of this panic buying is becoming habit so panic buying is a habit and so you're going to see a lot of people who even when things become more readily available they're still going to be kind of short on the dealer shelves because people who hand load now rather than saying yeah i, I keep an extra thousand or two thousand primers here maybe they're going to go buy ten thousand maybe twenty thousand sounds like a lot of money but it's better to have then when this happens again you you're basically okay um, another thing that's in kind of short supply are bullet molds i mean the expensive ones are still kind of out there but the Lee ones that I and everybody I know who casts bullets uses because they're cheap, uh, those are selling for about three times now what they retail for. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I think those will come back fairly quick. I, I would assume that by summer we're going to see plenty of Lee molds here, there, and everywhere, and, and that's going to work out. But Shooting Illustrated basically did another whitewash. Uh, for the ammo companies, yeah, they're they're great Americans. They're producing all they can. They're producing more than last year. They're working 24/7. Everything's happening. All this good, except if you're a consumer like me, you're just not seeing ammo. And when you do, when you do, it's some usually off-brand stuff. We're not seeing the not seeing the stuff we're used to seeing. Uh, Somebody just sent me an email, some distributor, who are scalpers, a, a nine mil, four boxes of 9mm for, uh, I think it was $130, $140. And then, the, and then these bastards, these bastards charge you shipping on top of this horrible usury scalper prices that they're charging. I mean, they can't even throw in free shipping. That's how ruthless and greedy they are so anyway all i can hope is that uh, somehow more capacity is found more production is initiated and that plus a a a declining demand because a lot of people have already apparently panic bought enough that that hopefully that this that this levels out and the reason you know Shooting Illustrated was doing a whitewash was they, they go into the deal and they and they explain the, the ammo company standard line of, well, we can't just expand production because then when things go back to normal, we'll have too much capacity and prices will go collapse and go real low, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I guess they're not businessmen because they can certainly realize that after this run, that if they expand capacity now they can they have the money they can make investments into a lot of machinery and they can they can amp up production well if demand falls they can retire some of this older equipment that's obviously probably ending its life cycle because of the uh, extraordinary demands being placed on it and so they they can keep the newer machinery retire the old stuff and produce what what they see as their magic number 
to to uh, maintain the market. So, you know, this is just funny when they say, well, we'll just be stuck with all this extra factory space and machines and a lot of the, no, they won't because you can always contract and make it smaller and keep the best stuff going. That's, that's just the way that is. So, again, it, we're all being taken for a ride on this. And I don't know where this is going to go when hand loaders run out of primers, which I assume that most people are now. Um, it's going to be it's going to be very very difficult, and they're putting the entire industry, the entire hobby, the entire gun culture at risk. Okay, another thing I wanted to talk about was, well, you notice I was looking through. Because the weather's so bad, I was looking through old shooting books, and, you know, sometimes you can find even PDFs online and, and all kinds of great things, and uh, stuff that goes back to the 60s and 50s, and and really talk about it. One of the things that just never has, has made it into modern, any kind of gun writing or any kind of content creation, is the, is gun fiction. You know, essentially, and to think about that, the best, some of the best examples are Skeeter Skelton. You know, he, he wrote a whole bunch of different things and, and different characters. And it always centered around guns and kind of centered around the, the accurate descriptions and things of guns that we would have that we, that we really enjoy. That that's, you know, that's, that's really the big part of the story is that. Uh, Stephen Hunter, the guy who wrote The Sniper, uh, I guess he wrote several books. Uh, um, you know, what was it? Billy Lee Swagger. Yeah, that's he wrote all those. That, that was very technically very, very good, and that was very gun-oriented. Um, I forget. John Ross, I guess his name was, wrote Unintended Consequences. Same kind of thing. But you really don't see that much of it. And that's odd because in movies we demand absolute attention to detail and realism uh, when it comes to weapons and you know in writing that just seems to be for the most part a boorish aspect of of telling a story and people like yeah you kind of get people immersed in all that and nobody really cares but in movies I mean if you make a mistake if you have the wrong gun in the wrong era and, and everything else it's it's a real uh, you have you have some someone shooting a star model b in 1920 and then even because you're using it as a substitute for a 1911 that it's a it's a real faux pas and it's it's something that you know that they just absolutely latch on to as a uh, as an anachronism or as a mistake but it's a shame we don't have some more of that and and it's 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 hard it's probably some of the most difficult writing of keeping a a story and keeping a few of the other things uh going but i always enjoyed um a lot of that it was some some of that was very very good writing and some of it was uh um you know, something that you really think about because we connect our firearms to the past. The ones we had as kids are ones that we use really today. You know, we, we really kind of connect those stories and think about it. So when we think about those times, you naturally think about the guns. So gun fiction is something that should be very, very natural and very, very uh, uh, familiar to most people. But for some reason, it's not. So... 
just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Uh, who knows? Maybe somebody will be inspired and turned out, turn out some good stuff. Um, I don't know if the internet and the content providers can, can certainly uh, kind of do that. It's, the internet is much more informational document you know kind of documentary style you know youtube videos don't lend themselves to to gun fiction or anything that would uh, remotely resemble that so we'll see okay we have now covered a few things and one last thing to say is uh, um I've been listening to a lot of gun podcasts. Again, we got a big freeze going on here. So, you know, when the wind chills 20 below outside, there's not very much to do other than, you know, mandatory things of going to the store or going here, going there. Uh, listening to a lot of podcasts. And I, I tell you, it, it runs from good to bad. Here's what makes a good gun podcast. And I think while I like some of the roundtable things, I don't do them myself, but while I like them, they, they often degenerate into just jokester sessions, which you kind of have to be there to really get. You kind of have to personally know the people. You know, it, it's like uh, guys using it as an using it as an opportunity to throw out one-liners and be, you know, super smart and 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 all the rest of it, smart alecky, you know, and all the rest of it. And and frankly, you know, just listening to that, you go, what am I listening to? It sounds like sounds like being in a college dorm again, you know, and and listening to the, you know, the the kind of the knucklehead ramblings. So, that makes a bad podcast. What makes a good podcast is I think interesting information. And if it's information that comes from a guest, that's great. If it's information that's being communicated, something useful, I think that makes it uh, a lot better. Or if it's just a story that is, there's something there that's entertaining, I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a big plus. So as I uh, examine more podcasts, I'll try to improve my own, see if I can make it better. So that's kind of what I wanted to say about creators and this brings us to my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers got a couple of very interesting ones very interesting ones this time and this always this is kind of a question that uh, crops up every now and then if you could only take one handgun and one rifle to a critical situation whether it be SHTF Hurricane Katrina civil unrest etc what would those choices be? And again, I I go back to well, it depends which one. <laughs> it depends. It depends which one. Um, if I if I just said, hey, things things are getting hairy, and I don't know what's going to happen, so I need to take something. I could be stuck out in the wilderness, or I could be stuck in an inner city, or stuck in a suburb where things are going bad. You know, you you don't know which ones to select you you can always take the cop out default and say well my 5.56 ar and you know a nine millimeter high capacity nine millimeter you can you can't go really wrong with that if you're out in the dense woods that's in bear country or dangerous animal country or something else you might say or if you're out on in the west where there's incredible distances and you're kind of isolated uh, that's that's not really the uh, the choice you really want to have. So, uh, so in looking at that, um, 
my counter question to that always is, well, which situation? But if I throw that out, I'd have to say that the um, the one handgun that I really like and would take anywhere, and this is assuming I can have my own hand loads with me because that kind of makes this better. <laughs> this makes it a lot better. Uh, one handgun that I really like and would and and do pack around in the woods and and places. I've got a and I've mentioned this before the Brazilian the Ratty Brazilian Navy 1917 revolver, uh, 45 auto rim, but you can shoot 45 uh, ACP in it with moon clips, or you can even just drop them in and they'll they'll stop, and you can still ignite them. Um, I would take that because. It's an early end frame, so it doesn't have a heavy barrel. It's got a light barrel. doesn't have a sight rib. It's got good fixed sights, which with my hand load shoot point of aim. Um, it's got a good trigger. It's because it's a 45 ACP slash auto rim. It um, has kind of that shorter cylinder, so it's actually quite a bit lighter than a standard end frame as we would know it. And uh, because it's 45 caliber, the hole in the bore is bigger, which means there's less metal in the barrel, which means it's also lighter. So it's not a heavy gun. It's, it's a little bit big, but it's not a heavy gun. So I would, I would take that. I would feel good with that for most situations. Uh, again, you're in the inner city. I don't know. You, you know, high capacity something is, is very nice to have. But anyway, that would be it. Um, the rifle uh, would essentially be... I really don't want to do 5.56, would really like to do 7.62, and an FAL with, say, a, an 18-inch barrel, and I do have one of those. That would be a very, very nice, with a with a good sight. With a This one has a, a nice uh, four-power scope on it. That would be an excellent weapon to have in a variety of situations. Excellent. Not too powerful. A magnification for uh, using in and around an urban area but not but definitely useful out in the hinterlands uh, heavy enough that you can employ it against barricades or cars or large dangerous animals high capacity enough so that it can quell a crowd if, if they're after you so uh, definitely those would be my choices today um, I tell you that tomorrow I might have a different might have a different thing um you there's so many great choices that you can uh you can come up with um, and definitely for someone who's not all that gun savvy uh i would say that you know if you had or or somebody who's recoil sensitive smaller in stature not that familiar um an m1 carbine and a good 22 like a good Ruger semi-automatic 22 would be excellent choices. You know, you could you could get by with that. You could definitely get by with that. But uh, there's no substitute for training and experience sometimes. And, and so, anyway, with my training and experience, I would want something heavy, hard-hitting that I could employ against a variety of targets. And that's both rifle and handgun. Uh, I believe in... It's not that I disbelieve in nine millimeter and that I or that I marginalize it, but I do believe that big heavy forty five caliber bullets um, do speak with authority and that's anecdotally been borne out over the last 
hundred and some years. So that's where I am with that. Okay, here's the next one. Uh, <clears throat> this is an interesting one. People laugh about boomers and their 1911-style handguns. What were the greatest generation's favorite guns? Okay, everybody's kind of laughed about, yeah, the boomers, you know. And I guess I'm kind of the tail end of the boom, I guess. But uh, everybody kind of laughs at, you know, hey, you know, these they're all into 1911s and all that. None of that is really true. It's all a generalization. But um, the generation that came before them, though, was very interesting because... The greatest generation really took firearms from very utilitarian uses to, you know, made hunting mainstream. You know, a lot of Americans only hunted to subsist before World War II. You know, it wasn't a lot of sport hunting. In the 1950s, it was huge. After the war, it became huge, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even continuing till today, that is that is hunting. People really, and I would say that it's extinguished in many places, people, the need of people to hunt. Like, if I don't get a deer, I starve. That was the case in the 30s. That is not the case in the 50s or now. So they really transformed. They were very transformational when it came to the types of guns they liked. And I just picked out a few that I can remember. Uh, my father was a, a World War II veteran, so, you know, he was a greatest generation person. And so uh, they, they liked nice quality bolt-action sporting rifles and lever-action sporting rifles. You know, the modern ones like Winchester Model 88, a few of those. They liked those. They, they liked high-quality sporting weapons, so I'd put that on the list. Other guns I really liked were the Springfield 03 and 03A3. You know, you would see those at target ranges all the time. That generation, even though they'd used the M1 Garand in combat, they they did have a tremendous appreciation for the Springfield. Uh, 1911A1 for pistol. Smith & Wesson N-frames for pistol. Smith & Wesson K-frame. And surprisingly, you know, the greatest generations were, they were the ones who bought the, the Colt Python. When Colt introduced the Python, that was in 1958. And, uh... Those were the guys buying them. And uh, so, you know, very high quality. They liked high quality guns. They liked definitely very, very nice guns. Uh, Winchester Model 12 hits that list. You know, there used to be a real cult of Winchester Model 12. It's, it's basically dried up now. But again, and that was based on quality. And that was based on the fine manufacturing. And I think these guys kind of got that idea from world war ii um you know the small arms that were put in their hands were excellent quality um thompson's even grease guns excellent quality you know excellent materials and workmanship uh same thing with the garands obviously m1 carbines bars they they expected those guns delivered and these guys you know, throughout their lives, expected a lot. They expected that if Colt made a gun, that it was top quality. They expected if a, Sm a Smith & Wesson revolver would be top quality. And indeed they were. So that's the ones for the greatest generation. Ooh, and the follow-up question to that is, what about the lost generation, which is the World War I generation, which actually encompassed my grandparents? 
we have long generations in my family, so we we kind of a couple of generations we go way back. Uh, you know the the World War One generation really kind of went from that wild bunch western, you know, kind of the. 92 Winchester, 73 Winchester, Colt Peacemaker. They really created a, a, again, they were transformational because they, although bolt-action rifles had been around, they really popularized them. I mean, when you think of the Lost Generation, the, the gun that immediately pops to mind is the 1917 Enfield. You know, that was their gun, their their rifle in their war. So, consequently, that was what you think of. Um, obviously they liked the newer technology that that generation you know the the nascent technology of of semi-automatic handguns became became mainstream 1911 po8 luger trying to think of a few others i'm sure there are a few others out there you know the like the clunky the giant clunky 455 webley yeah, that uh webley semi-automatic that that was royal navy used for a while um you know but but there were a lot of course colt 1903 savage 1907 um on and on and on you know you can just keep naming these these guns um so they they were they really embraced the semi-automatic pistols and they really embraced bolt action rifles in fact after World War One, there was a big clamoring for bolt-action rifles for sporting uses. It, it, up till that point, lever actions were very, very popular, and World War One changed that. So when you think of the Lost Generation, the World War One, I, I think they they kind of went from what we think of icons of the Old West to some of the newer technologies from the turn of the century and a little bit later. So that's how I would look at them. Okay, this is another repeat of a question. You have said that there is no way that you should really use a cap and ball revolver for defense or for modern applications. Is there any circumstance where you would reconsider this? And I had to think about this. Um, for an experienced gun person, the only way that that works and I can speak from personal experience on this one. I was stuck in a hurricane one time. This is several years ago now. Uh, obviously, I was out of state. I was an out-of-state resident. I was doing business travel. I was stuck there, okay? Could not purchase. I went into a, a sporting goods store and saw, hey, this is pretty cool. For 350 bucks. you can buy basically the, uh, I think it was a Remington 7... Ah, was 798 or something the cheap the cheap 30-06 bolt action had sights on it you know that was it open sights and hey basically 335 bucks and you know hey another 20 bucks you could buy cartridges and you you'd have a 30-06 bolt action rifle wouldn't have a lot of ammo but you'd have that being an out-of-state resident could not purchase it so hey i was stuck that would be the only time I would think that if you could find the supplies, if you could find the powder, the balls, and the caps, and you could purchase, you know, like you, let's say you're in a place where there's, hey, there's a Cabela's, you know, so you go in and you buy a 51 Navy or an 1860 Army, and um, essentially you're an out-of-state person, but it doesn't matter because 
that's not really considered a legal it's not considered a legal firearm so you know hey there you go you you buy it and that's it uh, in that case I'm experienced enough I think I could I could definitely make that work for me you know no no worries uh, for a new person who doesn't know anything about guns that's that's a bridge too far just because of the the learning curve behind a cap and ball pistol can sometimes be a lot more complex than people understand so you know I don't think that for a new person that that would work but for an experienced person who's caught in that situation you're traveling for business you don't have a weapon you know there you go you can you can buy one of these things out you know and and do that you could you could literally do that um, there is another the only other time I would say that you could you could consider this and this is really reaching this is really reaching but if conventional ammunition is just not available and you don't have any and you can there are ways you can make your own caps they kind of use something that akin to the old photographer's flash powder remember the old movies where you know the the gang of reporters comes up and there's a big whoosh from a flash bulb well that kind of powder can be used in and there are devices that'll make a uh, using aluminum can material will make a cap you put that in and you put sometimes they use hairspray or whatever it is they spray it over it to get get it hard enough kind of build up a little crust on it so the stuff doesn't fall out you can make a percussion cap that way at least good enough for a revolver you can mill your own black powder um, everybody knows it's potassium nitrate charcoal and sulfur it's got a risk factor to it but you can mill your own you can mill your own uh, black powder and if you can cast your own lead balls in the appropriate caliber you know that's about as close to completely self-sufficient of having a multi-shot firearm as you can you can get so so uh, i would say that's just the that's just the deal there um you you could make a case that you know it's the old the old thing in the the land of the blind the one the one-eyed man is king well in in a land where nobody has any cartridges if you have a multi-shot firearm even with all of the drawbacks of a percussion revolver hey you may be king you you've got something you've got some outstanding firepower you know the clock has now turned back to you know 18 1840 and there you are you have got it you know and everybody else does not so those would be the only way that i think that's the only way that uh a percussion firearm you know cap and ball firearm would be um, would be useful today it just not it has to be a very specific set of circumstances and you'd have to have some extraordinary knowledge I've always been intrigued to build my own percussion caps and to mill my own black powder but that is something that takes incredible attention to detail and I would probably before I attempted that have somebody that's not something you watch a YouTube video and do. That's something you have somebody who's credible, who really knows what they're doing, um, mentor you through the process and explain all the risks and explain the benefits and, you know, and see what, 
what you get out of it. I've heard that homemade black powder is it's comparatively weak. So it could be one of those things where the juice is just not worth the squeeze uh, on that. So I would be very, very, very reticent to try that. But uh, in, out of desperation, I would certainly give it a give it a try if I had the requisite knowledge. Okay, here's another question. Do you have a rifle that you consider to be a guilty pleasure? A rifle that isn't all that good, but it's one that you just happen to like anyway. And the answer to that is, yes, I do. And it's the Moisen Nagant rifle, the one that people <laughs> derisively call the garbage rod or, you know, the Mosin Nugget, you know, the thing. It's... And the reason that people kind of, a lot of people kind of look down on it, two reasons. Number one is they were so cheap for so long that, you know, in our society, price confers value. So if something's expensive and hard to get, it's seen as valuable. If it is inexpensive and everywhere, it's seen as cheap and not as good. So we, we kind of unnaturally attach quality to scarcity. The other reason is is some of those rifles were built under some of the most extreme wartime pressures that anybody has ever built rifles under. So they're not exactly pretty. They're not exactly as precise as something else. But they are really a, a miracle of production and a miracle of design and a uh, just a, a miracle uh to the allies in world war ii if we there was no way we had enough production capacity to turn out a lot of rifles to give to the soviet union who were part of the allies at the time so you know the fact that they could supply themselves with with all manner of small arms but especially rifles was extremely good for us because that meant we could give them some other things that they could find very very useful and would be very very effective but of the Moisin Nagants, my favorite ones are the early ones with the old-fashioned sights, you know, the hex receivers with the old-fashioned sights that's graduated in Arshins, which is a cubit, which is like 27.4 inches. And, uh, you know, so I like I liked those now when they literally um, standardized the metric system in the 1920s. That's when they designed the 9130, and its site is graduated in meters, not arshins. But I like the old sites, and I especially like uh, the Finnish capture ones where you look, and they, they basically have given you the meter equivalents on the uh, right side of the uh, uh, front sight block, because that way you can you know where every step is in meters, and it it's you don't have to convert from arshins to meters so that's that's pretty helpful i like those actually those sites because you know frankly they're easier for me to see i don't know why it's purely subjective but the older sites are easier for me to see so i like them much much better the other version i like is of course the sniper um and and i don't have and i don't have any experience with pms or the PEs, it's just the you know the standard PU scope that you saw in uh, Enemy at the Gates, and you know is really just the emblematic one they used um, in all the propaganda and all the imagery from the war. You know, so that's I really like those. I think they're actually very cool. Of course, yes, they're too high, and you have to get a 
stock weld is a, really a cheek weld or chin weld, I guess. And uh, But they're actually good quality scopes. They work reasonably well. Um, I have heard stories of people shooting out to six and 800 yards with them. I have not had that that pleasure although you know maybe i will in the near future as as it looks like i'm going to be able to uh find a place that will allow me to shoot longer distances so we'll see i personally think that the big drawback though with moisons and longer range is the lack of match ammunition you know there's there really isn't it's just kind of ball ammunition and some of it is machine gun ammunition so uh there are some there are some challenges to that and, you know, frankly, an open sight rifle uh, hitting a man-sized target beyond two, three, or 400 meters. 400 meters is incredible if you can do that with open sights. 200 meters is difficult, very difficult, as our military rifle matches prove. Um, it, it is not an easy thing to hit a, man, a stationary man-sized target at 200 yards, much, much less a moving one or one that does not really want to be hit because that's what... That's what you would most likely encounter in a uh, World War II type situation. So it's a very, very uh, uh, interesting rifle, and the, the markings on them are fantastic, you know. And of course, it's in Cyrillic, and if you can read that, it's wonderful. And and uh, you know, they're it's it's absolutely a mysterious looking language when it's printed on things, and and absolutely. It's absolutely fun. If you're a militaria, you like mark. If you're into militaria, you like markings. You like the different, all that kind of different things. Uh, a Moisin again is a marvelous rifle. It really is marvelous. And uh, the fact that, you know, sometimes they were produced in factories where they could hear the <laughs> hear the front line fighting is uh, amazing. Also, and. Uh, you know, kind of like a T-34 tank. It may not be finished all that great in some areas, but it's completely functional and completely good. So, yes, those are a guilty pleasure of mine. I actually, uh, I like them quite a bit. Uh, I do enjoy, like anyone else does, the M1 rifle. I think that's, that is a guilty pleasure. I would, I'll pick up an M1 rifle and shoot it just, you know, on those days when you're just feeling kind of crummy and you just say, I need a pick-me-up. I need I need something to cheer me up. You know what? Picking up an M1 rifle and shooting it is is the thing that will that will definitely uh, lift your spirits. So um, I do like the M1 rifle too. So uh, those are just two of my guilty pleasures. Hand, handguns, it can be a whole variety of things, but uh, I really think that uh, uh, for rifles, those, those two really, really kind of get it. All right, here's another question. What do you think is a best buy in a 7.62x51 battle rifle? Looking for semi-automatic battle rifle to potentially use if things go bad. All right, I would have to say that I think the best one, and I haven't seen them advertised in a little while, but, you know, uh, a lot of companies made Century and a few others, they made... Uh, um, I'll, I'll call them G3 clones or sent me clones. Uh, they made those and they weren't that popular and they weren't that popular because they don't have really nice triggers. The, the, the design of that, that rifle has a very heavy trigger pull and the ones made, especially to German specifications had a 
deliberately heavy trigger pull. Uh, they they score the brass and throw it a long way. They do not have bolt hold opens. The actuating lever is uh, kind of up in the front end of the rifle, and it's meant to be you hold the rifle in your right hand and you grab that thing with your left hand and you pull it back and it it'll pull the bolt to the rear. And the uh, bolt hold open was a simple simple cutout in a tube. Other than that, though, and all of those are just things that, that you can get used to. You just have to get used to it. Other than that, exceptionally reliable. The magazines, at one time you could buy the magazines for $2 a piece if you bought them in bulk. I think I bought 25 of them, and they were 2 bucks a piece. I mean, hey, now some of them were pretty, but they were all functional. And, uh, you know, they were just old German Army magazines. A few, a few of them were steel. Most of them were just the aluminum magazines dating from the 1960s and 70s, a few from the 80s. So, you know, it's a very, very good, a very good rifle, very reliable, powerful, takes a 20-shot magazine. And they were, they were selling under, well under $1,000. What were they selling from six to 800 Maybe even less. Maybe even less. Now I don't know. You know, now you have to just kind of dig around and and see what you can get. But you know, a very it was a very very good solid purchase. And for somebody who thought they might need a heavy caliber rifle, you could get into that for not a whole lot of money, um, comparatively speaking to a lot of other things that are out there. So it was a good deal. Um, I also like the BM-59, but the problem is the magazines are hard to find and expensive when you do. You know, $60 magazines, not something you want to be dropping and and forgetting about. So, although I like it, not a lot of not a lot of fun. And you know, those those are climbing up there also. And a lot of the other ones are just climbing up in price. The the least expensive one was the um, the HK sent me clone. Uh, the only other thing that was even close was for a while they were selling when DPMS kind of went under, got bought by Remington and kind of went under. Um, they were selling their 308 Oracle rifles. They were selling those for like 6.99, and I'm not sure what magazine they took. Uh, so that that was it. The other the other alternative is you can if you can find the larger AR10 type lower receiver you could always build your own and you know your mileage may vary i think that's that's been done enough now so that it it's it's not that hard i mean people can assemble something like that pretty pretty easily what that will inevitably cost you depends on your options but i would i would assume that it would at least be 750 800 800 bucks uh the other the other alternative is the brownells ar10 the retro ar10 very nice rifle and i understand they're going to stop making the light barrel version which hey face it you don't want that anyway you want the heavier barrel version simply because if you're going to shoot any kind of prolonged strings of fire that's going to be the one you want to use you definitely want to use that one uh they do have a problem of they don't mount optics well as a matter of fact i don't think they mount optics at all because of the uh um, the way the charging handle is, but I will tell you that charging handle, while people think it's a debit and think it's an obsolete 
feature. It was actually very well thought out and very, very quick and very, very agile. So if you're going to shoot open sights, that's that's a great choice right there. Um, the nice part about the sent me G3 clones is some of them came with a rail on top, you know, the Picatinny rail that was put on there. So you could you could clamp on there any any kind of scope you wanted. Or, you know, the uh, standard version ones, you could put the H&K claw mount on. Those are getting, that scope and claw mount are getting exceptionally expensive now. I think the latest ones I saw were over 700 nearly $800 for the uh, uh, German surplus scope and claw mount. So, you know, your mileage may vary. If if you have the have the rifle already and plenty of mags, that's not a bad investment. Uh, if you're starting from scratch, uh, you might want to look at other options. So that's what I would say is the best options out there now for a heavy semi-automatic battle rifle. Okay, here's our last question is with the fluctuations and basically all the variables in the guns and ammunition market, what are things that people could buy today that aren't necessarily on everybody's radar screens where the prices haven't gone crazy. Okay, stuff I would look at is, you know, kind of buy the stuff people aren't buying. And there's plenty of optics. Uh, there's no back order for optics as far as I know. Uh, so, you know, now's a good time to shop for optics. There's plenty of them out there, competitively priced. I would definitely go that way. Other accessories, anything that's not a gun but there's a lot of you know especially for ARs there's so many aftermarket things it's it's impossible to keep up with all this kind of stuff but um, there's a lot of aftermarket things so if you need to upgrade the furniture or something on your AR now is a good time to do it because you're not buying a gun you're not buying ammo I think right now and I would do this quickly magazines are still a fairly good buy I mean you can get P mags you know, under 50, 15 bucks, what, 12 to 15 bucks, depending on the, the version and, and the color and whatever else. I would definitely buy a few of those. I'd buy 100 bucks worth. That's, you know, could be that uh, a year from now, those things are worth three or four times what they're selling for now. So good, good quality magazines I would buy. Uh, now's a good time to buy holsters. Very good time to buy holsters. Other gear. Um... You know, a good piece of kit that I've been using is called a Gorka 4, and it's a combat suit. It's kind of old school. It's canvas. Uh, they make them in Russia. You can buy them through Amazon. And, and the nice part is, unlike a lot of military surplus gear or military style gear, uh, they make it in a wide variety of sizes. So if you're not exactly uh, um, a 25-year-old track star bodybuilder uh, you can get a size that'll that'll fit you so the Gorka 4 and it's on Amazon and you can you can get them there uh, they they ship them from Russia they take takes a little while but they make them in a variety of sizes as I said before and you'll be very very pleased with the quality I'm very pleased with mine so that's a good piece of kit to go after uh, you can go after there's a lot of load-bearing gear out there uh, a lot of it is different different qualities 
you know, just kind of go after what you need, I think, is, is a good deal. But now's the time to buy some of that competition stuff. Now, really good time to buy a, scot a spotting scope if you don't have one. Um, it just, you know, you can buy up these things that you normally don't buy because there's competing priorities. But if you put those other other things aside, now is an excellent time to get it. So that's what I would uh, recommend as things to get into and buy. And, and of course, uh, you know, something else that's really good is tools, you know, uh, good gun screwdrivers, gun cleaning kits. Uh, those, I have the, uh, eh, <laughs> forget what it's called, but it's anyway, it's that, that vice that you put the gun in and when you clean it, you know, you've, you've all seen those. Those are, those are really nice to get. I mean, um, and the good part is that stuff's all kind of plastic and, and, and everything. So it's nothing there is in short supply. So I would get definitely one of, one of those, you know, those kind of range bags, another thing to get right now. Um, yeah, those are, those are it, you know, kind of go for all that stuff by cleaning supplies. You know, that's a, that's another thing, you know, you can never have too much. You don't want to run out. So cleaning supplies are something that you can, uh, you can get your supply of and, and go from there. Uh, other things are, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, trying to think. Well, the hunting clothing, we already kind of, or tactical clothing, we kind of covered that. But, you know, those things are out there. They're good. Uh, you know, now's a good time to get a really good set of boots, good set of summer boots and a good set of winter boots. You know, if you if you trek around like that, uh, those are... Any infantryman will tell you that uh, a good set of boots, we talk a lot about rifles and pistols and all kinds of other things, but a good set of boots is something that uh, is indispensable, absolutely indispensable. So those are my suggestions, and that's, uh, that's basically it for this edition, number the 93rd edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is and if you have any questions you can leave them for us on podbean or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com that is kbmakel at aol.com and i will answer them the next podcast and hey that's about it it's been a been kind of a long one today so anyway we will see you later. This is Old School Guns, out.